we're going to be in the book of Hebrew today, uh, chapter 11, so if you'd like to turn there. Um, before we do that, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for, for creating us to worship you. Lord, we thank you for uh, bringing us to this place where we can worship you, Father, that we can worship you together with, with a body of believers. Lord, I pray that you would meet us exactly right where we are, that you know exactly where we are and you, you know um, what our burdens are. You know exactly what we need to hear. And Lord, we pray that you would, you would allow us to be able to focus on you and be able to see the cross and see, Jesus, who exactly you are. Lord, I pray that any uh, words that are of me would be quickly forgotten. Lord, everything that's of you would go straight to hearts. Put me behind the cross and be glorified, Christ. Amen. So as uh, they shared, uh, we're starting a new series today. Um, it's titled The Suburban Legends of the Christian Faith. It's based on the book um, that, w- that we have going on, uh, reading with our staff and also some uh, small groups titled The Ten Dumb Things That Smart Christians Believe. We figured that if we changed the name a little bit, it would maybe be a little bit less offensive. Um, we'll see if that, if that goes through. Um, what, what this book is, is doing is looking at the Christian disciplines that have kind of been turned into myths. And today we're going to be looking at faith. The myth that faith can, if you have such a positive faith, if you have such a positive attitude, enough faith that you can fix and do anything. Um, and why is that wrong? It sounds kind of good. We'll look into that. Um, we find faith uh, in Hebrews 11, titled Faith. Um, so join me as we read there. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed as God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. Before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and and rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned against things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he he condemned the world and uh, and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And by faith... Abraham, when called to go to a place where he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land. Like a stranger in a foreign country, he lived in tents, and as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him in the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. When I started reading this chapter, uh, it was kind of um, what I like to call as a sigh of relief uh, passage. I felt really good reading it because when I was reading, I was like, I can relate to these guys. I understand what they're going through. And some of you might feel the same way. Like, I've been in, the, I've been in similar situations as them. With Abraham um, hearing God's voice and trying to understand him, but not really knowing where he's going, going to this distant land that could be you, whether you're searching for a job or trying to figure out where you're going to college or whatever it might be. Trusting in God, I'm like, all right, he's going to get me through this just like he got Abraham through this. It's a really good uh, pick-me-upper, uh, as I like to say with it. Um, because we've all, all, all experienced these aches, these pains, these doubts. 
and persecution, very similar to these people. Let's, let's continue on uh, as we jump into uh, verse 35, the second part of that. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better uh, resurrection. Some faced jeers and floggings while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskin and goatskin, uh, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. They were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Now sandwiched in between um, 35 and the end of 10 is more uh, characters that we see that are living by faith. And that sigh of relief when I got down to 35 turned into more of like I got the wind knocked out of me. I was like, did I, did I miss something here? Did, did I lose? Did, did, did someone leave out in my Bible something like this? Because why are these guys committed for faith? This doesn't sound like faith at all. People are getting sawed in two here. I mean, how are they committed by faith? Did they, I mean, did they have faith that God would deliver them to be sawed in two? I mean, that's, that's pretty ridiculous if, if, if you ask me. When I first read this, I didn't even know what jeering was, and that's not something I wanted to do in my pastime. And it makes no sense to, for people to be living in holes and in caves. I was like, God, what is faith? What am I missing here? Am I missing something? And his response was like, yeah, you're missing exactly what true faith is. So I started frantically turning back to the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, trying to find the passages where, where Jesus would, would heal people, where he would perform these miracles. Because I, I, I remembered in those stories, he would say, your faith has healed you. I was like, all right, well, what, what healed them? What exactly is it that they have that these guys maybe did or didn't have? So I started reading them again and, and seeing how he would heal the blind, heal the, heal the sick, the crippled. I finally noticed what true miracle was. But how did we get this faith so turned around? How did we get from 11 all the way to 35 here in Hebrew? So I started thinking, well, I, I remember this other passage that we learned uh, in church. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, that we live by faith and not by sight. It's like, all right, well, we learned that in church. I understand that. I can see where we can get that point. But we weren't born in a church. We were not born Christians. We were born sinners. We were born in a hospital. So how on earth did we learn faith prior to coming to a church? Because faith exists out in the real world as it does here in church, but in a different way. One of the biggest voices in our secular world today is the media. And uh, never more than today is, it, is, is the fact that movies are being quoted left and right uh, in all places, at school, at work, here in church. I'm going to quote a couple. Um, everywhere we go, movies are quoted everywhere. It's only to get my point across that I say that. Um, and one of the movies that we see, this faith myth, that if you believe strong enough, it'll happen. We find that in this movie called Field of Dreams. Field of Dreams is about this Iowa farmer who hears this voice saying to him that if you build it, he will come. This he is Joe Jackson and seven other White Sox players from the 1919 World Series that had been banned from the game uh, because they threw the series. In other words, they were cheating. Um, I, don't, I don't even, I couldn't even imagine doing this. He believed that 
this voice was telling him, all right, build this baseball field and they'll come. If I did everything that the voices in my head told me to do, I would be flat broke and living at home still. (laughs) This guy didn't even know who this voice was. Did he put it to the test? A lot of times we believe this. Ask someone who has started a business and has, has wound up having to close it after a couple weeks because no one came. Did that person not have faith? That's what we're being taught here. Another great example from a movie of a character who falls into this faith myth is the character Buzz Lightyear in Toy Story 1. Yeah, I like him too. Um, He's this action figure uh, that's based on this character, Buzz Lightyear, who's a, a space ranger. And Buzz Lightyear in Toy Story is actual toy made out of plastic. And he's being reminded time and time again that, dude, you're not real. You can't fly. He's like, no, I'm the real Buzz Lightyear. I'm awesome and I can fly. So Buzz Lightyear even is in, is in so much denial that he even sees a commercial that shows that he's a toy, that he can't fly. Subtitled on the bottom, cannot fly. And he walks outside of the room where he saw this commercial and he sees this open window um, overlooking the staircase and he, he climbs to the very top of it. And while he's climbing and he's at the very top, he still hears the voices in his head saying that you are a toy, you cannot fly. And he's like, no, I can fly. Inspirational music cues and he's about to jump off. And he's like, I could fly if I wanted to. So he, he stands up, stands tall, pushes his red button, his wings expand, made out of carbon fiber, and he gets ready to jump off to infinity and beyond. And of course, he crashes straight to the ground because he's a toy and he couldn't fly. And later on, what you see is that he's caught in this, in this troubled time where he's like, well, who am I then? I really thought that I was the Buzz Lightyear, that I could fly. Now I've just come to, to uh, got my senses that I'm really not him. And how this plays into our world today that people believe like, well, who, who is God? He didn't answer this prayer. He didn't do what I asked. Who is he? Who am I as a Christian? We, we learn another trade from Buzz here uh, that our culture picks up on. Um, we see it quite often, especially in, in the sports world. If you ask most of the students up there who my favorite basketball team is, um, my salt guys especially know that it's, it's Duke. I'm a huge Duke basketball fan, so if you're a North Carolina fan, bear with me. Um, I, I, like to, uh, I like to think I'm a pretty laid-back guy, pretty easy to to talk to and stuff and pretty open, but there's certain parts in my life and certain things that I kind of only like to share after I'm really comfortable with people. And Duke basketball is one of those. I mean, I get into it. I mean, like really, really into it. I'm standing most of the time instead of sitting on the couch. I'm yelling. I'm screaming. My dog Winston doesn't know if we're playing because I'm jumping around or if he's in trouble because I'm yelling at the TV because the ref caught an offensive foul and it was clearly a charge. I don't know, I get, I get really into it. But in the few occasions that Duke is actually down in a game, I know it's rare, but in the few times that it actually happens, um, it's true, no it's not, um, the tr- it actually happens, I'm like, you know what, I can help them. I can, I can help get them back up. Or sometimes I'm, I'm thinking, you know, maybe it's my fault. Maybe I should be wearing the white jersey because they're playing away instead of the blue jersey that I'm wearing right now. 
the sports freaks in here totally understand what I'm talking about. Where I went to college at Texas Tech, um, when, when the football team was on the field, and when they were standing, we were standing. We, the student body, would not sit down until they would sit down and have a timeout. Or if in a timeout they were losing so bad um, that they needed our help and our motivation, we would continue standing because we understood that they would be able to get through the game if we stood the whole game. That too didn't work much. These rituals are these superstitious acts, these acts that we form when either a good result or a bad result happens and we actually stumble across something. Maybe we think like, oh, I had orange Gatorade and we won the game. I'm going to have orange Gatorade next time when I play again. Or I was wearing this shirt when I got this, went to this interview and, and it was awesome. I nailed it. Maybe I'll wear this shirt again. We see it all over the place. We hold our breath when we're waiting for a certain expectation or for the Powerball to come out. We expect and like to see all these little things. I don't know if we play Powerball or not. I don't know. And you might be thinking, well, wait, are these things bad? Are these superstitions stuff bad? Like, no, no, by no means they're not. They're, they're, they're good. They're fun. Um, they're all right. I'm still trying to find the right ritual to keep my golf ball on the fairway off the drive when I'm going golfing. Almost got it down. I just got to tee it up a little higher. So um, these rituals in our environment that we use, these superstitious, uh, superstitious acts— they're okay in the sense of sports and work um, and school because these ritual, the rituals, when they're applied to that, they don't affect who, who we see Jesus as. They don't affect our understanding of God's will and us in that. Webster uh, Dictionary defines faith as this. A belief and trust in and a loyalty to God. A belief in the traditional doctrines of a religion. Firm belief in something for which there is no proof. A complete trust. Is Webster right? And that, sounds, that does sound really religious. It sounds really good. I, I might have to use that when I go to seminary. Is this how our church defines it, though? Our church here in New Jersey? Is this how the church around the world is defining it? Once I moved here, one of the, the questions that I got asked a lot, um, I'm from Texas, and everyone kept asking me, are things really bigger in Texas? I was like, dang right they are. <laughs> and one of the big giants in Texas is Lakewood Church, home of Joel Olstein. Some of you have, have heard of him. Joel Olstein is the number one pastor in America today. He has a couple of bestseller books. He's the number one downloaded pastor on iTunes for podcasts. And his, his church there at Lakewood hosts 16,000 people. It was home uh, to the Houston Rockets, and the Astros would play ball there as well. And his service is televised in over 100 countries. At Lakewood, Joel teaches the prosperity gospels. And if you're new to that term, you don't, don't know exactly what it is, let me define that. The prosperity gospel is that we as Christians are to live in total victory. Victory which is given us, by, given us uh, from God... And the way that he gives that to us is by giving us extreme wealth. Good relationships with everyone. To live without pain and without anxiety. And also that we as Christians should expect that. Please hear me. I'm not saying that Joel Osteen or the people there at Lakewood, I'm not condemning them at all. This is just one example of how the church has taken this myth and taken what real faith is and tweaked it. Because as Christians and in Scripture, 
We're told to test things. We're told to put it to the challenge. Let's put this to the challenge. Being wealthy. Well, as Christians, we want to look like Christ, so let's let him be our our, uh, centerpiece here. Jesus was not wealthy. He was not born in a wealthy family. His parents could only offer um, the minimum with the sacrifices when they went to the temple to go and give offerings to God. You can find that in the book of Luke. Good relationships. Jesus was disowned by his own townspeople, by his family, by his disciples. He was betrayed by them. So I would say that he did not have always a good relationship. Prosperity Gospel teaches about having a life that is free of pain. Well, Jesus was whipped, punched, kicked in the face, slapped, and died on a cross. An act that was so brutal that the Romans later banned banned doing that because they found it to be so cruel. No anxiety. Jesus was a man after God's own heart. In scripture, we see, we see from time to time, like many times, that when he goes to, um, to, a, to a place by, him, by himself to go be with God, to understand who he is, to pray to him, to be in that relationship with him. And in the book of Matthew, we see Jesus going to, cry, uh, going to God um, full of sorrow and trouble. In the book of Luke, that he was so full of stress that he sweat blood. So I'm going to have to say that he did experience anxiety. The prosperity gospel makes Jesus out to be a softy. It makes him out to be an open-minded, big-hearted, never-offended-anyone moral teacher. And that's not who Jesus was. Jesus taught tough truths. He taught people how to, to live their life. He rocked people's world. He called religious leaders out when they were wrong. He overthrew tables at the temple. It's my favorite one. I like that, Jesus. So I have to say that this myth of the prosperity gospel is busted. But it, sounds, it does sound really familiar. That's because it does derive from Scripture. In Mark chapter 11, Jesus is teaching his disciples. And he's teaching them this. Have faith in God. I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Jesus is painting a really big picture here with a really big brush. And what we can get focused on a lot of times is the mountain. We're getting focused on this mountain that if we, can, if we pray hard enough that God is going to lift it up, that God is going to take it, and he can do anything. That is what Jesus is trying to say. Jesus is trying to show that God can do anything. But not in the way that it's, it's been formed to this myth. Jesus is not going to be answering prayers just because you have a very positive Uh, outlook on it. And he's not just talking to anyone in this passage as well. He's talking to people who are believers in Christ, believers in who God is, and all the amazing things that scripture says that he is. And I don't have time to go into that because as a Christian, that's actually, that's our job to do that in our own one-on-one time with him, is to really dig into scripture and look at who he is. 
And God does want us to have good relationships. But he wants us to have good relationships with the people that we're in relationship with all the time. And the reason that he wants that, because that can be a hindrance when you go to worship, when you come to church, such as today, thinking about maybe a conflict that you had with someone the night before or last week. Because God is a jealous God, and he wants all of our attention. And he wants us to be clear-minded when we come and when we come to worship him. Verse 24 gets a little bit taken out of context as well as John 16, 24, which says this, Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. We need to remember that Jesus was not wearing a red suit and a white beard when he said this. It's not him giving an open season invitation for us to ask for a sports car in his name and that he's going to deliver it. Because I've tried and it does not work. (laughs) Or maybe I just need to keep asking. Um, The request that we make must be for the good of God's kingdom. To pray effectively, you need faith in God, not faith in the object of your request. Because a lot of times that's when people get let down and they ask the question, well, if God is such a good God, why did he allow fill in the blank? God is a good God and he does reward. Because in Hebrews 11, it talks about a reward that we receive. We do receive a reward. There is a victory. When Jesus Christ went to the cross, died for all the sins of the world, rose on the third day, victory was won. Sin was banished. And if you have repented for your sins, past, present, and future, and confessed in Christ as your Savior, you understand that. And if you have not done that, we will be here at the end of the service and love to talk to you about that and walking beside you in that. That is the victory. That's the reward. And that's a reward that will outlast anything that this world could give us. That's what these guys at the end of Hebrew, uh, in the Hebrews 11, understood. They understood that the reward that they were going to get is in heaven. It says that they didn't receive a promise. They didn't receive what was promised. That can, get, that can make God look like, well, he didn't deliver. Oh, he delivered all right. He delivered the goods. But he delivered it in a way that lasts for all of eternity. Because if you want this earthly reward, you can have, God's like, all right, take it now. But if you take mine, if you take my reward and believe in, in what I say, it's going to last for eternity. like I said, you have to be seeking him. For faith is not a skill that we master. And Christianity is not a ritual. It's a lifestyle that we live every single day. Maybe today you may have realized that you're kind of living in this myth. I'm like, all right, where do I go from here? I challenge you to read Luke 17, where the disciples are come to Jesus and they're like, increase our faith. And he says to them, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. Because a mustard seed portion of faith is more than enough for God to move in huge ways in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that at times we've been, we've been living in this, in this myth. Lord, seeking our own will for... for um, for our lives and not yours. And we thank you for f- your forgiveness and we ask for you that now. Lord, we pray that you would continue to stir a passion inside us, that we would strive to be able to look more like you and that we'd strive to understand your will and that we would have faith in you, that the faith that we'd have would bring you glory, that we would surrender our lives to you.
Jesus, we thank you for surrendering your life for us. We thank you for taking our place on the cross. It's for your name and for your glory that we pray. Amen.